Good morning. It's good to be home. We had a great vacation. Spoke seven times at beach camp and, and then went backpacking, went to a family reunion, went with the kiddos to San Diego, the water park and the zoo. You know, it's kind of fun experiencing all of that in a new way as you look through the eyes of a three-year-old and the wonders to behold. And then Shelly and I got a few days uh, alone. That was kind of, <laughs> that was really nice. So it's always uh, good to get away and get refreshed. It's good to be home. It's good to be here. Something you may not know. Uh, in our children's ministry, last Sunday we had 150 children from uh, nursery to fifth grade at the 9 a.m. service. At the 10.45, we had 150 children, 115 children. That comes to 265 kids that heard about Jesus right here last Sunday. Might be more this Sunday. We use 52 volunteers, no paid staff, 52 volunteers each Sunday to make nursery through sixth run. And we are short. We need some people, 18 adults, 18 adults, if we're going to run our classes next Sunday. So would you, after this service, check in with Kathleen and ask her, what could I do? Let her give you the options. When I was at uh, First Baptist Church in Modesto with uh, Jordan when he was just a, a child, we were required to dedicate one Sunday a month to the children's ministry because our kids were in that ministry. I know we need a break, but I encourage you. I wish you'd say, John, because it's you, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't have that kind of clout. Never entered my head. But maybe the Lord does. What could God do in the life of a child? And more importantly, in you. Step outside your comfort zone. Just dedicate a Sunday and see what the Lord can do. I think he will inspire and encourage you. Now, let's... Turn to 1 Corinthians as we consider what's love got to do with it. We're in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to finish up verse 4, but I'd like to have us look at the necessity, character, and permanence. The first three verses, Paul expresses how important, how essential the necessity of love. And then in 4 through 7, the character of love, which is what we've been looking at and then in 8 through 13, the permanence. Let me read it together with you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love. How important is love? If God prescribed us a pair of glasses, and I'm very aware of the significance of glasses these days, if God prescribed us a pair of glasses by which to look at the world and all we do, those glasses would cause us to see all through the lens of love. If we ask Paul, well, when does God want us to wear those glasses? Paul would say, child, God never wants you to take them off. God wants you to wear those glasses so that you see the world with his eyes and experience it with his heart. If we ask, can love really be that important? We have only to hear these all too familiar words. For God so loved the world. What's love got to do with it? Everything. We can't escape the obligation of love because God first loved us. Here in verse 4, the word in the New International Version translated proud is quite literally and graphically the expression to puff or inflate. He uses the verb to be puffed up or inflated. To be, and this is, this is the way I translate it, to be full of yourself. Good translation would be conceit or arrogance. But to be full of yourself. Some Corinthians are full of themselves. In fact, 
of the seven times that this word occurs in the New Testament, six are in this letter alone. And it's getting in the way. It's getting in the way of personal relationships. It's getting in the way of God in their lives and the difference he makes in the way they relate to one another. But let's leave Corinth and the early church and think about this a little bit more generally for a moment. When I think of the word conceit, because in high school, the word arrogance was a little too big for me. But I heard the word conceit a lot. I don't know if it was the drama, but it's like, you're so stuck up, he's conceited, she's conceited. When I think of conceit, I think of high school. When I think of conceit, I think of Hollywood. I think of high school and Hollywood. I don't always think of you, for example. In fact, I don't see conceit and arrogance around here, quite frankly, but I know it's there. because I see it in myself. I googled the word conceit. I got all kinds of links and hits and Yahoo answers and this person had asked the question and people gave their definitions and I'm not gonna give it all to you but I'm so hot, everyone wants to be with me. Everyone wishes they could be like and look like and be as popular as me. I am the most important person in the room. That was kind of like, I'm gonna write the script. This is what a conceited person says. This is what an arrogant, a person who's full of himself thinks this way, even if they would have the good taste and good sense not to say it out loud. I think of Hollywood. This quote from Meryl Streep in an interview with the Daily Telegraph in London. I don't know if she didn't feel quite free about saying these things right here in California, but she said it's sort of exhausting, this self-congratulatory atmosphere in which the movie community lives. It's unbearable. We're not that important in the world, but we certainly all think we are. And with all the entertainment tonight, Us Magazine, you would imagine they are really important. She goes on. We've gotten a little bloated. It's so grand and the outfits are so incredible and the critique of how everybody looks and the desperation of people to make an impact, it really gets to me. I'd saved an article by Harvey McKay. I enjoy reading him. He wrote a piece, Ego Trips Have a Dangerous Destination, and he tells a story about his son, who's a a film producer and director in Hollywood, the land of large egos and monumental conceit. He shared a story about a movie actor who had bored the ears of his lunch companion by talking incessantly about his recent movie. Suddenly the actor stopped and said, but I'm talking all about myself. Let's talk about you. How did you like my latest movie? (laughs) I know we're a long way from high school, most of us. 
some of us further than others. And we're a long way from Hollywood. It's easy to get a little smug, but if I were a movie star, and I ought to be, uh, I'd be a lot better than that. But, you know, just contrast that with this. I read about Albert Pujols. He's the first baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals, world champion, recipient of three national MVP awards. He's, according to a poll of 30 major league baseball captains or managers, he's the most feared hitter in the sport. But even more impressive is his life off the field. The Pujols Family Foundation, which he began, offers support and care to people with Down syndrome and their families, the poor in the Dominican Republic. He's a committed husband, father of four, and he's a passionate disciple of Jesus Christ. While speaking in an event at Lafayette Senior High School in Missouri, Pujols told the crowd of men and young boys, and I quote, as a Christian, I'm called to live a holy life. My standard for living is set by God, not by the world. I'm responsible for growing and sharing the gospel. And then he read Philippians 2.3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than ourselves. And he told the crowd, one way for me to stay satisfied in Jesus is for me to stay humble. That is dependent on God. That's really the biblical definition of humility, by the way, is to depend on God. You depend on him. You lean on him. You look to him. You look at the world through his eyes when you're walking by faith. That's how humility is developed. But when we go off alone and we live in isolation in our own little empire, our own little castle, and we're consumed and preoccupied with our own thoughts all the time, looking at the world through our own eyes, seeing people in comparison to ourselves, that's the fuel for conceit, for being puffed up. Really, that's the definition for being full of ourselves. And he says, one way for me to stay satisfied in Jesus is for me to stay humble. Humility is getting on your knees, he says, and staying in God's will. Getting, in your, uh, getting on your knees is not something I... Maybe he gets physically on his knees all the time. But I like the idea of not only getting on your knees physically... but getting on your knees in your disposition and heart attitude. Staying in God's will, he says, what he wants for me, not what the world wants. And he added, Jesus satisfies my soul forever. He talked about how he can, with especially his notoriety, his money, his celebrity, he could have so much but he says it only satisfies me for a moment. Jesus satisfies me forever. Contrast that with Ted Turner. 
Turner Films, CNN. If only I had a little humility, I'd be perfect. Pujols says, one way for me to stay satisfied in Jesus is for me to stay humble. Humility is getting on your knees and staying in God's will. That's two different personalities to be sure, but it's more than that. It's two different gospels. It's two different cultures. It's two different worldviews. And sometimes we get so cozy in this world, we, real, we forget that we're supposed to be of a different economy, a different mentality, a different heart, the very heart of the Lord. As Paul Hole puts it, my standard for living is set by God and not by the world. You know, I could, as I was preparing this week, I thought there's so much that we could laugh about and perhaps be challenged by if I spent time describing pride, conceit, arrogance, or being puffed up. You could find your own synonym. But I could describe, and perhaps we could avoid, maybe we could take notes and say, well, I'm not going to do that, and I'm not going to do that. Sometimes we could even become more savvy about hiding our pride, our self-absorption, our self-conceit. But I wanted to get at the issue, what changes our heart? What, what eliminates that? What takes it away? What changes our disposition? Not through taking on more rules and regulations and legalism and no's and don'ts. What alters the way we see ourselves? I want to share just two passages, but we could find so many more. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. I hope you have your Bible. I thought, oh, I'll have everybody turn in their Bible, but sometimes we don't, or turn in our iPad, or turn in our smartphone. But listen, you've got to let the Word speak to your hearts. It's the only thing that has the authority, especially when we're talking about pride and self-absorption and it's all about me in this, this world we live in. Only God can break through. Nobody else has the authority. You gotta be in the Word. And I want you to bring your Bibles and I want you to open them and look at it and ponder it and let God's Spirit communicate His heart to you. But look at this, I, I thought, well, I, but you know, even if we don't have our Bibles or our smartphones or whatever, I wanted us all to see this. So whether you're looking in the Bible or have to look up here, because sometimes people say, well, we should all bring our Bibles and we shouldn't have it put up on the screen. But this is important. Beloved, let us love one another. What, what's gonna motiv motivate us to love one another? For, here's the reason, here's the answer, love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, here's how. By this, the love of God was manifest, made plain, exposed, revealed to us, in us among us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And then he amplifies further, in this, 
That is, God has sent his son. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. In other words, we're loved not because we have done anything. If anything, we needed an atoning sacrifice to be so loved. We owed a debt to God and his holiness that we could never pay. He absorbed that debt. He satisfied that demand. That's how much he loved us. He looked past our faults to meet our needs. He loved us first. So when we think about who we are, we've got to always think, I'm not even lovable. It's that God has loved me. It's not because I'm special. It's that God is love. Here's another passage. God being rich in mercy, not giving us what we deserved. Withholding his anger, patient to be kind, to be merciful, out of his grace, out of his love, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. Listen, everyone born into this world is already dead, already dead spiritually. It's not something that happens with your first sin. We were dead in our transgressions, made alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved by grace. In other words, God's free initiative out of his favor. And raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. It's that which is the gospel that says, when I see myself in the light of God's love and Jesus Christ, There is no one that is not my peer, no one that is not my brother or sister in the sense that God loves me, I'm special. God loves you, you're special. But we are not elite. God loves the person sitting next to you as much as he loves you and me. We are changed by love. That last verse, we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus that is created by the gospel, by God's grace, by his love, by the work of Jesus Christ. We're created in Christ not for self-absorption but that we should be 
propelled and motivated, inspired to do for others as God in Christ has done for us. God loves us in such a way that when it gets a hold of us, it changes the way we see everything. And we often forget about that. We get so caught up in our world. It's so fast-paced. It's, it's, it's so action-packed. There is never a dull moment. True? We have to incorporate our walk with God into our busy schedules. Now here's the thing that I really want us to appreciate. In psychology, they don't use the word conceit or arrogant or stuck up or full of yourselves. They use the word narcissism. Have you ever heard that word? Have you ever heard of narcissus? You know, he, uh, he caught a reflection of himself in the water and it began a lifelong love affair. <laughs> Listen to the way, she, she wrote a book, Generation Me, which I have and I've been reading, I've been reading excerpts. For, if you wanna see what, what's, what's going on, it's amazing. But this is the way she starts her new book, The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement. When is that age? It's right now. Narcissism, and then she inserts a definition, a very positive and inflated view of self. I didn't write inflated, that's her word. Comes right out of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 is everywhere. It's what you have if you're a politician and strayed from your wife. It's why five times as many Americans undergo plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures today than did just 10 years ago. It's the value that parents teach their children with song lyrics like, I am special, look at me. The skill teenagers and young adults excessively hone on Facebook and MySpace, and the reason high school students physically beat classmates and then broadcast their violence on YouTube for all to see. It's the message preached by the prosperity gospel and the vacuous ethos spread by celebrity newsmakers, and it's what's making people depressed, lonely, and buried under a pile of debt because they can't keep up with the Joneses. And they are unhappy, not because we don't live in the best of times, even with our economy and the things that are going on, there's never been a time in history where we haven't had it so good, but we're dissatisfied because we're always trying to be something we could never be because we're not following God's will, we're following the will of this world and what it peddles and what they want to sell you and what they want you to buy. I've been reading Social Intelligence by Daniel Goleman. I'm in my second time around, and now I'm underlining. Fantastic book. I'll talk about it some more. I got it because I've been reading about the brain, and in the last 10 to 12 years, amazing amazing insights into the way the brain works and what could happen. I mean, it used to be believed by the neuro sciences that if 
Something happened. You had a stroke. You, that was just your bad luck. Nothing could be done. I mean, there are no after factory parts. Nothing can change. If it's broken, it's broken. But not today. Especially through MRI imaging and others, they're able to validate what's going on in the brain under certain stimuli and the psychological world of the neurosciences doing incredible things to tell us about what's going on. The thing that hits me, even with books where they're writing about or writing from a standpoint of evolutionary biology is that it's just so clear to me that God created us for community, created us for relationship. And that's what this book by Goldman is saying. I've been reading a number of books, but this book, he also wrote Your Emotional Intelligence or Emotional Intelligence. He has a whole chapter on narcissism. Throughout the book, one little theme just gets bolder and bolder. We were made, our brains were wired for empathy. We are to be empathetic, connecting, looping emotionally people. And the the book and the science says we do this subconsciously. We connect. It's the way our brains interact and interface. But listen, what he says is narcissism kills empathy. See, we're so caught up in ourselves, we can't feel, we don't even notice other people. And what he says is empathy is the step to compassion. And compassion is the step to helping others. That's a problem in a narcissistic era. We are being disconnected rather than connected. People are walking in with their ears. They're living in a world, even when they come to the counter or to the window. You know, I wish I could talk. I mean, it is just, it's, it's, it's unsettling to realize how caught up in this we are, in isolation. Our world is changing that. Here's the conclusion of Dr. Gene Twinge, the professor of psychology, the Generation Me and Narcissism Epidemic. Our whole society has become more narcissistic, not just the people, but our entire value system. And Goldman says, whether a given narcissist is healthy or unhealthy can be gauged by their capacity for empathy. You know what? Webster's Dictionary definition gives for empathy the action of understanding, being aware of, being sensitive to, and vicariously experiencing the feelings, thoughts, and experience of someone else. Goldman says the same thing, only a lot more words. Ever hear the expression, think outside the box? You're the box. 
we have to get outside of ourselves. Denzel Washington, a couple of years ago, was on Oprah Winfrey. He was promoting a movie, The Great Debaters. Midway through the conversation, Washington, who's a believer, noted the encouragement his mother had given him throughout his life. He also shared this story about how his mother deflated his growing pride. He came in the house feeling full of himself. He, he says, feeling full of myself, a movie star. I said to my mother, did you ever think this was all going to happen? And she was like, please, first of all, go wash the windows for me. You have no idea how many people have been praying for you when you were a being a knucklehead. You stand with me. You know, you can boil this message down very, very simply to when we're full of ourselves, God can't get through. When we're full of ourselves, we don't notice. We don't feel with or understand other people. There's no compassion. There's no help. In other words, we become an island unto ourselves. And we are not fulfilling, as we saw in Ephesians 2.10, what God gave his son to accomplish in our lives. This has bearing on right here today before we even leave this campus. There are people that come to this church for the first time and we're we're caught up in our little group week by week, and that's important. I want you to connect. But sometimes our own little group becomes kind of narcissistic, and we just we tune out to the needs of others. It means with our spouses connecting. We're designed to be empathetic, but we've got to get outside of ourselves at work, at school. Put on those glasses. See all of your world through the eyes of God's love for you and his love for others. And realize he wants to use you and make a difference through you. Today, making a difference even today. And that's an exciting challenge. That really is. God wants to do something special through you today. He does love you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. Even we who have grown up in the church and He is our hero. He inspires us. We want to be like him, and we know it's your purpose and plan to make us so. Father, help us in these little ways to give in to you today, to trust you, to ask ourselves, how can I do this by faith, by trusting the Lord and letting him work through me? Father, make a difference in us and through us as we walk with you and serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.